Welcome to the show, Ben Colzer, and you are the founder of the Centre for Integral Health. Uh, you're a kinesiologist interested in epigenetics and specialising in nutrition. Well, that's that's a whole load of stuff there. We could go anywhere in that conversation, Ben. Hi, Elaine. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, lo- lots of uh, years, well, 16 and a half years in professional practice and uh, almost 30 years since I started, from a personal point of view, looking at... Uh, sort of complementary and alternative health as well so yeah you, you could say there's there's quite a bit of stuff in there not bad for a 25 year old uh-huh. is that is that how long and young and beautiful I still look thank you you, you get you full do. marks today <laughs> <laughs> wonderful okay so um first of all the center for integral health why did why did you create that where is it what do you do there so we're based in Shrewsbury uh, in Shropshire, so West Midlands, just on the Welsh border. And uh, part of the reason why I founded the centre was at the time there was nowhere else that was offering a specific integral approach to health. So complementary health as a, as a process seems to come from this idea of holism or, or a holistic nature but it doesn't necessarily overtly recognize some of the aspects that we uh, benefit from looking at in health. And uh, there was an American philosopher, Ken Wilber, who really in the the mid-90s fully coined the idea of uh, integral theory, where we, at the very least, look at reality from both subjective and objective point of views, also looking at how... Uh, aspects vary between the individual and the collective so there's always a part of us that is our our mind which is our subjective self and our body our objective self that's sat in a culture which is the objective uh, the subjective collective and that's in a physical environment which is the objective collective so it's it's quite a, a complex theoretical model in a lot of ways but it gives us a very clear way of looking at the body and health and and understanding where problems might arise within it uh, and also looking at areas that individuals might not be fully caring for themselves in so you know you you might have brilliant mental health but not look after your body or your relationships or you might live in a poor environment so these other aspects can affect your health and I, I wanted somewhere that really overtly and clearly highlighted all of these different aspects so that people kind of knew when they were coming to us that we weren't just looking from a symptomatic point of view. We were really trying to understand deep uh, causative aspects within their health so we could give them the best support and health possible. That's a brilliant explanation of in, in, integral health and um, as opposed to what I um, recommend to people they they, they take a, an integrated approach which sure. in my, my simplistic world is taking the best that everybody has to offer and sort of integrating it so for for those in the UK the best of the National Health Service and integrating yeah. it with alongside um, complementary uh, yeah. and so on so there's in, integral which is kind of the whole body mind uh, environment um, you know the, the whole bit and yeah. it's so in- integrated. So, um, and, of, and of course, the integral model also takes on board all of that which, which you see as integrated. Um, and for instance, we can understand that, that most of our NHS-based medicine is uh, really referring to the uh, objective body. 
So it's looking at the body from a mechanistic point of view, but it doesn't necessarily take into account how the culture around illness might be affecting somebody's health. You know, the beliefs that we have about people that have cancer or have HIV or have serious conditions and how we treat them on a cultural level. So the it's quite a complex space, but it really helps us to understand well which bits are being covered, which bits are being supported, and then which bits aren't. Yeah, absolutely. That's there's 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 an awful lot to it, and um, I, I find that we we've got so many specialists these days, specialists in every topic you can you know throw a stick at, but none of the specialists seem to talk to one another. And sure, yeah. you go to a specialist for this part of your body or that part of your mind or whatever it is, uh, whether it's NHS or, or an integral uh, practice. But so few practitioners know about the whole lot, which is why I'm always interested to talk to, to, talk to you, Ben, because you, with your studies you've done and your actual practical applications over the years, you've kind of you've got it all together, which is which is wonderful. Yeah, sure. But as time goes on and the more is learned, I realise there's more and more to uh, integrate and become aware of and, and more possibilities. So it's uh, which is good in one way, because, you know, there's a, a never ending range of ways to, to skin the proverbial health cat. So we can always uh, find other approaches and other aspects. So even when we get people that turn up with us and, you know, they, they've been through the NHS route and, and only achieved a certain amount of change and they've tried all sorts of different therapies, you know, they, they often come in with this sort of slumped shoulder. I've tried everything. Nothing's helping me. I don't know how to go. And, and, you know, we're already there going, well, that's okay. Let's have a look at where you have been and then we can work out where you haven't been and see which aspects of that might apply with you. Yeah, absolutely. So so why why have you um, concentrated on kinesiology, epigenetics and nutrition? What's, what's the big deal with those areas? So one of the things that we find or I find with a lot of the people that I see is that the way that they've become ill and I don't look at illness as, as an event really, uh, unless there's been something, uh, significant like a car crash or, or, you know, a, a real piece of uh, traumatizing activity. I don't look at it as an event, but an accumulation where we're the sum total of all the things that we have and haven't done. And one of the reasons why people are ill is because some of those choices that they've made do not support them. And one of the reasons why they're not worse off is because some of the choices that they make support them and, and encourage health with them. And one of the things that I find with a lot of people is that they don't even recognize the basic fundamentals of how their vehicle works. And a lot of us... Uh, we know how to use our phones, but we don't really have an idea of how the phone actually works. We know how to use our cars, but we don't really know how the car works. And our bodies are, are often the same. We, we kind of know how to use it, but we don't really understand how it works. And we don't really understand the implication of the quality of the parts we put in, the quality of the fuel we put in, the regularity and the nature of the servicing we give our body as a vehicle, but also our, our state, our mental state as the driver. 
And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, again, this is the subjective and objective sides of, of that integral model. And, and so very few people, they, they know that something's not right. They know that they don't feel good. And they want a very simple way to be able to uh, start taking control and start taking positive measures. And I find, because within epigenetics, we use three uh, sort of generalized body typologies that, that link roughly into kind of uh, uh, endomorphic, uh, ectomorphic, and mesomorphic body structures. And so this is basically tall people, short people, and people in the middle. And um, we, we can look at genetic typology coming from that. And there's a series of generalizations that we can apply to it. And I often link this to, to a little bit like knowing whether or not your car is petrol, diesel, or hybrid electric. And because you've just had to kind of guess for the whole of your life, you don't really know what type of fuel and the mechanics of the vehicle you're using. So the epigenetics work allows us to uh, explore that information so that people can understand, uh, okay, my system will run better if I fuel it like this and treat it like this. Uh, and so often people will say to me, Do you know, I've kind of noticed in the past when I ate like that or I behaved like that, I was so much better. I don't know why I didn't stick with it. Uh, and so it's a really good step to, to really give people power and to give them choice so that they can improve their health by understanding the blueprint of who they are as a human being. That's a great explanation. In, in, in essence, it's about knowing our body, isn't it? And as you say, really? if we're eating something or drinking something that doesn't agree with us, then you know, don't do it again. Take note of it. Be aware of it. Concentrate on the things that, that do make your body work better and make you feel happier and healthier. Absolutely. And, and it's not always easy for people to, to really understand how complex the body is and how many processes are, are going on. And if we, we take something as simple as the, uh, the energy production within the cells that are done by the mitochondria, the little tiny organelles inside the cells, very few people realize, you know, you see a diagram in a, you know, a, a biology textbook or an anatomy textbook, and there might be three or four mitochondria bouncing around in a cell diagram. But when you realize that in muscular cells, there's 2,000 of those little organelles per cell, in cardiac and in some of the, uh, the neuronal cells, we've got 5,000 of these little organelles working away to produce energy for each cell. And all of them are magnesium dependent or they're zinc dependent or they require certain activated B vitamins. And being able to use kinesiology as a diagnostic tool to find out, you know, so the, the two things that we see the most probably are pain and tiredness. You know, they're the, the two commonest uh, kind of statements that I get for people looking for change in their life. And, and so we can use kinesiology to literally track through and find out whether or not the energy production within the cells is operating. And if it isn't, where is it falling down and what's the thing that changes that so that we can give them very clear information uh, about what we're finding and how to change it. And they, again, they feel empowered to then go away, put this stuff into process, and we see some fabulous changes with it. Give us a rundown for the listeners' benefit who've not come across. Um, you pronounce it kinesiology. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I know it as kinesiology. Give us a rundown on, on what it is and, and why we should um, take note of it. I mean, it's an incredible tool. And it's, 
it's kind of meaning in a general sense is manual muscle monitoring or muscle testing. And uh, kinesiology was uh, developed really in the late uh, 50s by uh, a very famous chiropractor called George Goodhart, uh, who went on and, uh, and formed the, uh, the International College of Applied Kinesiology. And uh, over the next kind of 30 years, there was well over 20 different schools of kinesiology that developed from his original work. And they all use muscle monitoring. So they're all putting limbs into fixed positions that represent the way that a muscle contracts and then applying pressure into that and observing whether or not the muscle engages or whether or not it inhibits. And we're able to use that binary response because the muscle either switches itself on, it engages, or it inhibits and doesn't switch on. So we either get a muscle that stays static or it moves. And we can use this as feedback from the nervous system to show us whether or not something is supportive for the body or whether or not something has an inhibitory effect. And this is something that we've actually all been doing for the entirety of our lives. We just don't know that that's what's happening and therefore we don't use it as a resource. So as an easy example, if somebody you don't like comes around the corner, there's this sinking, the whole body has that little collapse, you know, and, and you'll feel the gut drop, you'll feel parts of the body drop. And you can get it if you get a piece of bad news or if something that you're not sure about doesn't work out, there's this sense of Ugh, in the system. Whereas in the contrary, if you see somebody you haven't seen in ages and it's really exciting or you get some good news or something positive happens, there's this sense of upliftment that comes into the, the body. Uh, and my brother and I sometimes refer to it as red light, green light. You know, so the red light is this kind of sinking, heavy, contractive space. The green light for go is this kind of expansive, uplifting state. And so we're, we're using that as a barometer for the body to say, yes, do this or no, don't do that in a, in a very simplistic way. OK, I like that red light and green light. That sounds a good title for a book. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, what should we do? What should we not do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. OK. So um, you mentioned about different body types. And yeah. um, I guess within that, you're also talking about different types of metabolism. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. And we, we have essentially the, the three basic typologies. And of course, these are generalizations and, and people have aspects that are individually unique to them. And, and we also kind of highlight and identify those as well. But within those three major body types, we have uh, what we class as the gonadal types that are the kind of the shorter squatter type people. So they're short and broad generally. And they seem to do really well following uh, dairy-free vegetarian-based diets, low protein, and they're grazers as well. So they're the people that kind of like to pick through food, generally have low stomach acid, don't do so well at uh, having big meals or having protein-rich meals. Um, you know, so their, their systems metabolize light food, and it's better if there's a little amount of it. Uh, and then we have uh, an adrenal type, which are the kind of the taller, stronger percentile in the body. And their metabolism is really driven by their adrenal cortex. 
Uh, and so they're the work hard, play hard, tenacious people that get stronger as the day goes on. And generally, they, they do really well on a, a good mixed diet. Um, so not too much erring towards vegetarian and veganism, not too much bearing towards kind of high protein, paleo, ketogenic styles, but somewhere in the middle of all of that. And in fact, the variation, um, and this is actually my uh, genetic typology, so I find that I probably eat kind of veggie vegan about half the time uh, and then I eat more towards paleo the other half of the time uh, and that just suits my body really well and, and I can just listen into it and, and listen to what it needs for that. And then we have the thyroidal types that tend to be kind of the middle height uh, but often very slim and willowy type people and uh, their, their metabolism is really governed by the thyroid and they really do best off the, the kind of the classic paleo style high protein moderate fat low carbohydrate diets they tend to really not do well with gluten and grains uh, and they tend to be much better off on the kind of the paleo ketogenic style food uh, and, and it's essential for them to be uh, having breakfast and to kind of follow that classic pattern of breakfast like a king, lunch like a queen, dinner like a pauper. Right, so okay. it's interesting, all these different names we have for things, um, but at the end of the day, whatever we're eating is vital to absorb, isn't it? So, so talk us through about the absorption process. How does it work and and why do we need to um, to, to observe our body and, and notice what the absorption levels are within us? Yeah, I mean, we, we've all come along with uh, with the pattern of we are what we eat. You know, Gillian McKeith made that that really famous uh, when when she was kind of profiling uh, kind of a decade or so ago. Um, but more more importantly, we've got to remember that our elementary canal is essentially an outside of us that runs through the middle of the body. So it, it, it's a, a hollow tube that's, that's convoluted and twisted in, in a series of amazing ways with lock gates and all sorts of other things in it. But essentially, it, it's very similar to the outside of us. It's a protective layer. So you could almost think of this more of a, an elongated ring donut um, that the, the membrane between the, that kind of crusty, sugary outside of the donut and the soft, doughy bit inside, we've also got that within the gut. And so the, the initial point of absorption is always through the gut. And if we don't absorb, then it, it doesn't matter how good the quality of what we're putting in is. What's actually getting to the important part is very limited. And so we, we've got a couple of layers of the self that uh, we can have problems with. And the first of that is the gut lining. And we can have an incredible amount of congestion from poor bowel movement, which can lead to compacted feces through parts of the digestive tract and old rubbish just being left in there. And so our absorption through the bowel can be quite poor. But almost more important than, than come of this, some of this residue is the health of the gut bacteria. So the gut bacteria, a little bit like the fungus for roots on plants, is essential for helping us to digest and transfer some of the matter that we digest and, and move it in through uh, the, the gut lining into the bloodstream. The ability that we have for chewing our food thoroughly and making sure that we're fully masticated. Uh, and I was talking about this last weekend on a, one of my Qigong workshops and, and talking about uh, a, a yogi who was published in a series of Time Supplements all the way back in the early part of the 
1900s uh, called uh, Ramasharaka. And he had a, a very simple adage that was drink your food and eat your drinks. And it simply meant to chew as thoroughly as you could until everything in your mouth was liquid. So that when your digestive enzymes start to act on it, they're acting on the most broken down form of that, that food that they can. Because they have a finite capacity to be able to uh, digest. And so if we haven't broken the food up enough in the mouth, there's a limit to how much the enzymes will then break down the food. And anything that doesn't break down hangs around and it starts to ferment. And that can often be where we end up with our bloating, our discomforts and our wind. So the chewing, the gut bacteria, first part of that absorption process. But then the quality of the cells that line the gut bacteria, and these are some of the, the most rapidly replacing in the body, but like a lot of our cell membranes, they're all phospholipid membranes. They're all actually made of fat. And so, again, these low-fat diets and all this obsession we've had over the last kind of 40 years of low-fat has actually been causing our gut linings to be less healthy than they could be. So having an, an essential amount of the correct and appropriate fats into our diet, making sure that they're, they're not rancid is, is quite important to even get stuff into the bloodstream. And then from that point, we've then got cell membrane diffusion from the bloodstream into the tissues where the body needs it. And again, this is all phospholipid based. So if the fats within the diet are not correct and not right, we have cell membranes and cell receptor sites that are bordering on being rancid. Uh, and there's a really interesting compound that our bodies give off called malondialdehyde when those fats in the cell membranes just start breaking down and going rancid on us. And it, it, it's really not useful. So, so those layers that we have, we need to be able to make sure that they're all healthy before we can even get nutrients into the cells. Wow, gosh, it's a lot there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so for, for the benefit of the listeners, what are the easy things people can do at home? You've mentioned fats. So yeah. what are the good fats that we should be eating or consuming? I mean, this is a really interesting topic as well. Um, so everybody's body requires a range of, if we just take the basics of omega-3, 6, and 9s, um, so basic essential fatty acids to go into the body. Now, uh, it's very easy for us to generally get our omega-6s, and we can get that through a lot of the, uh, the cold-pressed seed oils, um, and, and also our omega-3s we can pick up through things like flaxseed, fish oils, uh, but the quality is paramount. Uh, and this was highlighted very recently. Uh, we were having a discussion at the uh, Epigenetics Annual Conference about olive oil and about the qualities of olive oil and, uh, and where we can get good quality olive oil from. And we were looking at a report that, that came out a few years ago where a German researcher had taken uh, 31 brands, not samples, but different brands of olive oil from supermarkets in the UK and sent them to an oil testing panel in Italy to be examined. So these are all labeled as extra virgin, uh, and so all being sold as, as cold-pressed and the best quality oil that you could get. Now, when the Italian uh, uh, panel investigated them, they found that only one of the 31 was even extra virgin. Nine of them were virgin or refined. Uh, and then the other 21 were all lampante, which is lamp oil, not fit for human consumption. Oh, my. Um, 
So, so we have to be super careful about what we buy. And if we want really good oil, I mean, again, fats like butter, coconut butter, good quality organic sources, but our oils, our seed oils need to be virgin, cold pressed, organic, and from a reliable source. And, uh, and they need to be in glass, and that has to be dark glass. Uh, otherwise, by the time you've bought them, they are already rancid and already useless. That's interesting. And it just shows how um, effective the marketing um, of these brands are. If 31 of them, only one of them actually was what it said on the, on the uh, container. So for the, really? for the consumer, the average consumer going into, um, into a store, if it says on their cold pressed virgin olive oil, you'd, you'd expect it to be that. So um, yeah. I think your point about the, 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 uh, the make, you know, the, the, the brand is, is really important. Sure. Uh, and you always, you always know that if it's not in dark glass, it's rancid. <laughs> it, it, you can follow that as a rule of thumb uh, because oils uh, oxidize so very quickly. Um, and if, if they're not produced very well and they're not producing very good standards, then, you know, before we've even got hold of them, they'll, they'll have been rancid and sitting around for way too long. And it's amazing how many uh, deodorizing processes and clarification processes cheap oils go through to make them fit for human consumption. And even then, they're technically not fit for human consumption. Okay. So um, I've, I've heard about the, the balance between the, the Amigas. You mentioned three, six, and nine. And mm-hmm. I'd heard that um, the, the important ratio is to have the three and the six one-to-one ratio. Sure. I read a report recently that's saying that the average um, European has a ratio of about 17 to 1, omega-6 yes. to omega-3. What, what's yeah. your view on that? What, what can we do about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, essentially, uh, I, I've also kind of read into that data. And we tend to, within the epigenetics work, we look for an ideal ratio of somewhere between uh, 1 to 1 and 4 to 1. Uh, and as you say, many people are anywhere between 12 to 1 and 17 to 1 when you look at them Uh, and it's usually a lack of omega-3 oils and it's the the omega-3s that are coming through in our fish oils and we also get a good balanced ratio in uh, things like hemp oil uh, and we also get a good source of omega-3 from flax as well Uh, so flax is is one of the best ways and fish oil is one of the best ways of boosting that omega-3 and lifting those ratios up Plus, of course, it's useful if we identify where our sources of omega-6 are coming in. So how much uh, cold-pressed seed oil, you know, things like sunflower oils uh, are we using for, you know, as margarine or uh, how many processed products are we using that have oils in? And again, these would tend to be omega-6s that have probably gone rancid in the product already. So just having that awareness within the processed food and making sure then that we're using cold-pressed seed oils Uh, which are best absorbed in the evening interestingly enough so putting oil on your breakfast and on your lunch is not as effective as if you have it in your evening meal your body produces more of its lipase in the evenings so we get much better absorption of fat in the evenings interesting so what's your view on the um to improve gut health um i i read from time to time articles about some colonics colonic hydrotherapy is yeah. that a good thing to do to, to clear the compacted um, matter away or is it is it going to disrupt the situation a little bit of that depends on 
who is doing it in terms of the practitioner and also who's having it done in terms of the participant. Uh, I mean, personally, I'm not a massive fan of colonics because they're, they're quite a strong process. And uh, I'm more for encouraging uh, a top-down approach and looking at gentle bowel clearing. So using things like bentonite clay, using things like psyllium husk, so that you can kind of broom out the bowel over a longer period of time. And again, you know, making sure that you're eating a good range of leafy greens and uh, other vegetables that have plenty of cellulose fiber in them that is hard to digest, but also contains uh, a lot of our, our insoluble fiber, which is really useful as a prebiotic. So it, it can encourage the growth of our healthy bacteria because it's uh, kind of to a degree indigestible by our gut. So it helps to sweep it all through, uh, plus encourage those those healthy gut bacteria. So for me, I'm much more a fan of, of the top-down approach. Um, plus, it's also really important if you're not sure to have your gut bacteria checked by somebody that can look at a range of bacteria. Uh, and again, from the epigenetic point of view, we tend to look that there's about sort of 20, just over 20 bacteria that are commensural for all human guts and all human digestive tracts should have them. And it's easy to go and, you know, get one of these uh, fairly pointless drinks from a supermarket that's probiotic or to go and buy a probiotic from a health food shop uh, and think that that's going to be useful. And it might be. But part of the problem can come is that all of the gut bacteria, the individual strains, all have slightly different roles and they all live in slightly different parts of the gut uh, in colonies and they do different things for us, produce different B vitamins, for instance, support the immune system in slightly different ways. Now, if you've got plenty of, let's say, uh, acidophilus in your system, uh, but you're lacking uh, one of the other lactobacillus strains, you might add more acidophilus in and be crowding out the strain that's already in deficiency. So it's always, uh, from my opinion, very important to be checked to see whether or not the gut bacteria that you're taking is actually the ones that you need, because otherwise you might not solve the issue you're trying to solve and therefore think that the gut bacteria hasn't worked, but you could also be adding to problems that are there as well. How can we check our gut bacteria? Go and see a good kinesiologist or uh, have a, a stool sample done uh, to explore that. So uh, obviously I use kinesiology because then we can just trigger a reflex within the bowel itself and we can compare it against all of the gut bacteria strains and only the ones that the body requires will indicate for the body. Uh, so it, it's nice and simple for us. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know you could do that with um, kinesiology. Fascinating. Oh, yeah, we've got a mind of uh, incredible stuff that we can do to, to even examine things all the way down to a chromosomal level in your DNA so that wow. we, can, we can see uh, which chromosomes are expressing uh, adverse patterns for you and how to help those. You've mentioned prebiotics and probiotics. What's the difference? Uh, so a prebiotic essentially is probiotic food and uh, it, it's often in the form of uh, insoluble fibers uh, and sometimes in the form of things like fructo which are a, a type of uh, kind of starchy sugar 
the, uh, the food sources or the best and, and the clearest food sources. One of the best of those is actually uh, a compound called inulin that you find in Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why artichokes are jokingly referred to as fartichokes at times because all of that insoluble fiber in the body uh, as you eat the artichokes is encouraging the probiotics to kind of activate and boost themselves and some of that for a short period of time can produce a bit more wind and so that the prebiotics are feeding and nurturing the environment for those probiotics to grow all right it's interesting how interesting so prebiotic is um uh, and when we can we can buy inulin, can't we? We can inulin in drops. That's right. Yeah, and you can pick up uh, Jerusalem artichoke extracts and and inulin powder extracts uh, and prebiotic mixes as well. Um, and and again, if we think our gut bacteria is okay but just needs a boost, we can use that prebiotic. Uh, but to a degree, a good, broad, healthy diet that's got plenty of green leafy and starchy veg in there will also do that for you. Okay, and then we've got the pinotype flame, the psyllium husk, the psyllium, I think I'm right in saying you should be having that uh, before meals, psyllium husk. Yeah, that's right. So the, uh, And with plenty of water as well, so that, again, it's just sweeping through the system and because uh, it expands quite a lot when you take it. Um, so again, if you've got people that are constantly hungry, it's an interesting way of filling yourself up. It doesn't really have any nutrient value to it, but it will give you that sense of feeling full because the psyllium just expands with water uh, and that's just kind of draws very nicely through the bowel. Right. Okay. So, um, we've had a really good run through of our, of our gut with you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for that. I hope uh, listeners aren't, uh, about to sit down for their tea but uh, <laughs> they can uh, be aware of what they're eating so uh, what what I'm what I'm hearing is that if our gut is working properly it doesn't matter an awful lot about um what we're eating but it's better if we can have organic and fresh and you know do all those nice things but uh, it's almost like um providing we've got good gut health then what we put in isn't quite so important. So for people on low incomes, for example, and you know, in, in poorer, poorer environments, um, the most important thing would be to concentrate on the gut, um, eating fresh food where you can, obviously avoiding processed food. Um, ideally, we want, we want everything right, don't we? We want organic, sure. fresh, leafy green vegetables, mixed, mixed diet, etc., and yeah. a good gut. I mean, up to a point, I would I would agree with that. But there are some other things that can really affect the gut health as well. So, for example, a lot of the uh, pre-washed salads that we buy in supermarkets, uh, they've been washed in chlorine bleach. Uh, and if we think back to uh, Domestos adverts, uh, what does bleach do? kills most of the bacteria that's right sure so so we're actually and and, uh, all of your pre-washed vegetables in supermarkets are chlorine washed uh, because they want to kill the bacteria on them so that they can uh, be in storage and transport for longer periods of time so what we're doing over short periods of time is we're actually sterilizing our guts uh, with a lot of the food that we eat so to say that the the food we take on isn't as important is there's a certain point that, that that's true up until but then there's another level that it really isn't and the same if we're, we're having uh, pesticide laden 
uh, fruit and vegetables as well. Again, those uh, some of those can temporarily inhibit digestive enzymes and, and cause us other issues in the gut as well. So, so we should always be aiming for the best quality food and that in itself will also help to support the gut. And there are other little things like in a lot of nutritional supplements. And again, if you want to understand the quality of your nutritional supplements, go and have a look for all the ingredients, the excipients, the binders and the fillers that have been added. Uh, and you'll find in a number of uh, what I would class as lower quality high street style supplements uh, that there are considerable numbers of binders, fillers and excipients in there. Uh, and the worst of which, uh, in my mind, is something called magnesium stearate, which is a, an agent that is used within the manufacturing process to prevent the ingredients sticking to the machines. So the key that it, it, it prevents that uh, adherence in the machines also affects the way that our guts absorb. So you can be taking exactly the right supplementation, exactly the right dose, and exactly the right form but if the product that you're taking has got magnesium stearate in, you've already limited how you'll absorb it. So whereas you may be thinking that you're taking 100 milligrams or 500 milligrams of a, of a nutrient, you might only be absorbing as little as 10 to 15% of that. So really where you think maybe one or two capsules would be sufficient for you, you might actually need six or eight to get to the dose that you were hoping to take. Gosh, again, checking with a kinesiologist that uh, would, would uh, tell you what dosage you should be taking and, and what quality, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, sure. And obviously, you can also use things like functional medicine, and they can do a lot of blood testing and stool testing and other aspects for you as well. So there, there are other ways to do it. Uh, although, again, there's that part of me that always watches on uh, blood level results because sometimes you can show signs of excess and deficiency simultaneously. You might have really high blood levels of a nutrient, but again, if those cell membranes are not functioning adequately, you could still be deficient and starving inside the cell. And vitamin D is a really interesting aspect of that because vitamin D, again, is a fat-soluble vitamin. Uh, it works on the nuclear receptor inside the cells. So having a high blood level of vitamin D doesn't necessarily mean that your vitamin D levels are adequate and doing their jobs. Oh, interesting, because um, it said that most people with cancer would have low vitamin D levels. Sure, yes, that's right. And uh, would uh, benefit em enormously from boosting those because of how they can support the immune system. But it's getting the active hormonal form of that through cell membranes into the nuclear receptors to be able to do that job in the first place. So what would be the, the best quality vitamin D to take? How is it best absorbed? So we're, we're just coming into a really interesting development in the, the supplement market uh, if we're looking at, at supplementing it. And that is with what are known as liposomal formulas. So liposomal formulas are very, very cleverly made where they've taken two of the essential fats that are used to make cell membranes, uh, which is phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, and these help to make these phospholipid membranes. And under pressure, what they do is they squeeze the, the nutrient molecules inside essentially a ball of this fat, of this phosphatidylcholine and serine. And that allows the cell membranes to just totally absorb 
uh, and very easily to absorb those nutrients right to the point where you don't even have to take them orally. You can actually just rub them into the skin and the skin will absorb them straight through into the bloodstream. Um, so that's an incredible delivery system. Uh, but always with vitamin D, one of the best things we can do is get natural sunlight. And, you know, the, the RDA for vitamin D is around a, a thousand international units. And, uh, and yet if during uh, the summertime, so anywhere between uh, spring equinox and autumn equinox in the UK, uh, when the, the angle of the sun is correct, if I uncover 40% of my body, so essentially if I've got my T-shirt off, and I stand outside for 20 minutes, I will make about 20,000 international units. So our level of vitamin D within our body can be, you know, it could do with being quite high. And, and a lot of people, they, they buy, uh, you know, kind of either 600 international unit, 1,000 international unit supplementation, and they think that that's adequate, whereas really they probably want to be looking at five to 10,000, if not more, a day. Uh, and again, of a good quality source, and I don't recommend capsules with vitamin D because it's a, a fat-soluble vitamin, so it should be in an oil base, uh, again, helping the absorption through the system. Wonderful. Um, you mentioned water with the psyllium husk in particular, drinking lots of water because of the expansion and flowing through, etc. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the best kind of water? Because I, I, I wouldn't dream of touching tap water. But there sure. are so many different um, conflicting reports I'm, I'm seeing about water. So, so what's your view on water and <laughs> yeah. what you consider to be quality water these days? Uh, I mean, that, that is an incredibly difficult uh, question, and it depends how deep you want to go into it. Um, so, so if we take uh, bottled mineral waters as a, an example, uh, anything in plastic, immediately problematic because there'll be aspects of the plastic in the water. Uh, we could look at the calcium-magnesium ratios within there, and really we should have twice as much calcium as magnesium as the ratio, but frequently, again, you can be looking at 10 to 15 to 20 times more calcium than the magnesium in the water. Um, so again, those ratios are essential. I mean, personally, I, uh, I use a, a very good quality water filter called a Berkey, uh, and uh, because I, I, I live in a rented accommodation, I don't have this plumbed in. Um, so Berkeys are uh, incredible gravity filters, and they're they're only about one step away from water distillation. Um, and and for me personally, looking at things like uh, distillation and reverse osmosis, the water has lost too many uh, aspects of its. You know, it literally is H two O. So all of the trace elements that are in there are not good. Personally, I prefer harder waters uh, because they tend to have trace elements held in them from the rock that they've come through. But putting them through a good quality filter, again, especially to take out things like the chlorine, you know, it's used a lot in uh, the sterilization of drinking water, as are other compounds like halazone. Um, and again, if you're unlucky enough to be in a fluoride uh, kind of dosed water area, then really you want to make sure that the filters are removing fluoride for you as well. Okay, so lots of um, lots of um, things that uh, we've discussed have been. We could probably do whole programs on each of the topics. <laughs> sure. Um, it's a shame I haven't got more of your time at the moment. So I'm sure you'll be back on the show uh, uh, talking about other other aspects in due course. Thanks, Elaine. I'd love that. Just to summarise, then, Ben, what um, what what is, would be a kind of a healthy regime for the average? 
person in the UK to, to adopt, you know, healthy sort of, you know, day-to-day lifestyle, should we say. If we were going to keep it as simple as possible, filtered water, good quality and, and as much as possible organic fruit and veg that's seasonal. So, you know, eating strawberries at Christmas, not a good plan. Um, you know, stick with the stuff that's seasonal, try and buy as much organic as possible and eat real food. So try and stay away from the processed food as much as possible and the convenience food and the snack bars and all that kind of other stuff and try and eat as much real food as possible and listen to your body. Really, you know, kind of inquire if it's thirsty, if it's hungry, what it's really hungry for and uh and where possible have somebody help you with this so keep a food diary where you look at portion sizes but also look at your mood and your energy so you know you can have three columns within your food diary one is what you ate and how much you ate the second is what your mood was like in the kind of the the time after that until your next meal and what your energy was like so you can kind of have a little bit of comparison as to, well, after I ate that type of food, this is how my mood went and this is how my energy was. So you're starting to build this real sense of awareness because we're, we're all so individual, the demands on our time and our bodies are so individual that we kind of need to do a little bit of inquiry and, and there isn't entirely a, a, a one diet fits all process uh, and we always need to refine ideally go and see a kinesiologist or a nutritional therapist or a functional medicine specialist to check in that you're not having uh, foods that you have allergy or sensitivity to and but eating real food and making time for food so rather than eating on the hoof or uh, you know shoving food down quickly or still being at your desk at work while you're eating step away from the desk take time for food because that act of preparation is part of what stimulates the digestive enzymes as well so when we're preparing food our body already has that idea of what's coming so it's really ready for it whereas if we're just kind of grabbing something that's processed packed shoving it in our faces in 10 minutes before we get on with work from a, a holistic point of view that's not really nurturing us it's just filling a hole Okay, very comprehensive. I've just thought of another question to ask you about pH, um, okay. the, the acid alkali balance in our body. When I had cancer, I was continually told, "Oh, you must have a pH of seven point three six five because that's you know that's what you need to do." I, well, I've since learned that uh, that's the pH of our blood, and it's nonsense. Yep. We can't, you know, yep. nobody's going to you know regulate your actual blood pH nor nor test it. But I, right. I I never got more than five point five on my urine. And sure. uh, I was constantly told, oh, that's rubbish, blah, blah, blah. Actually, for me, that's perfect because, you know, sure. I, know I do testing. So, so yeah. what, what, can, um, what can you tell the listeners about the pH acid alkali uh, conversation? So if, if we take an extreme version of that and look at something like gout, where we've got acidosis in the system, we've got high levels of uric acid within the system, and we know that that comes from excessive consumption of high uh, purine-rich and acidic-forming foods such as red meats, uh, alcohols, cheeses, that kind of stuff. It, it's clear that there is imbalance in a diet at that end. But at the same time, a system that is overtly and overly alkaline, uh, the immune system is likely to be impaired. 
because when we're talking about pH, where are we talking about it? And, and you beautifully highlighted that, you know, blood pH levels, urine pH levels, but the pH in the mouth compared to the stomach, compared to the small intestine, compared to the large intestine, compared to the blood, compared to the interstitial fluid, they are all different. And they're all different for a reason. And to, to really constantly focus on uh, like litmus test paper, for instance, is the, the measurement of how healthy you are is a little bit like uh, misleading us in a way. And again, it's about having the balance in the diet. So if we're breathing correctly, if we're taking enough fluids on, and again, water in itself is the only thing we're really thirsty for. Everything else is just a habit. Uh, making sure that we're having that good range of uh, healthy natural food in there, then then we shouldn't really have to concern ourselves with the pH. And I think a lot of people make a poor extraction from uh, Otto Warburg's work where he's looked at cancer and talked about it only existing in acidic and hypoxic environments. So, and, and those really are, are symptoms rather than cause. Uh, you know, the cause is really coming from uh, poor diet and lifestyle choices uh, along with trauma. And, you know, if we can resolve those, and again, eating right for our, our body types and eating healthily and, and looking at all those integral aspects, where's my mind, where's my body, how's my relationships, how's my environment? And, and all of these factors change that. Know, high stress within our system is more likely to increase our acidity because our immune system is protecting us just in case we're under threat from something. So um, you mentioned eating right for your type. Um, I'm, a, I'm an A blood type and I understand that uh, uh, A blood types are red flag for uh, digestive disorders. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't personally tend to use the blood typing diets in the kind of the research I first did it in them kind of about 14, 15 years ago. I found that some of their genetic correlations didn't really add up quite right. Uh, and according to their uh, typology, I should be a, a vegetarian uh, in my diet. And uh, I, I, for 12 years, I did that and, and it just made me sick. Uh, and despite all of the knowledge I had about having a balanced and equal diet uh, and everything I did to manage my protein levels and manage my fat levels appropriately so that it was it was good for me, it, it just didn't work. Uh, and only by disagreeing with my blood type and bringing in, which, which interestingly my epigenetic body type highlights, to have a mixture of, of protein within my diet. Uh, but not an excessive amount. Uh, and that's what keeps me healthy and well. And, and I've pretty much been the same weight now for a number of years because I'm following this consistent pattern. And uh, it doesn't seem to matter too much what I do or, or how much I eat because I eat the right types of food for myself. And again, it highlights the importance of knowing your body. All those Absolutely. years you were ill, you were going along with um, whatever was written academically, but, but it, it, it it doesn't matter in, in some senses. It's nice to read reports and, and know what you know current thinking is. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned earlier, we're all individual and we, we yeah. really, really have to. It's not negotiable. We have to listen to our body. We have to follow what it wants. Totally. And, and that, that's the exploration. I mean, I, I can always remember when I read uh, Gandhi's autobiography, one of the things that he talked about very close to the beginning was the fact that his book was nearly called My Experiments in Dietics. 
because he spent so much of his life trying to work out what suited him the most to eat. He thought that that was maybe more important to write about. Um, and, you know, I, I really kind of took that on board that there isn't any one route. There's only the exploration of what you as an individual uh, run best on. Uh, and we are all so unique. You know, we're 50% our parents, but we, we've also got that whole genetic heritage that comes back. And if you've got family uh, heritage four, five, six, seven generations ago that was maybe in mining or uh, in some other industry where particular things were showing up, you know, your genetics respond in particular ways. If there were particular illnesses that uh, were present in your family, uh, you know, again, all of these things can affect your genetics. And our genetics are only really responding to the signaling from their environment. So we, we dropped this idea of genetic determinism a long time ago. And we look at what it is that actually tells your DNA what to do. And that comes from the environment. So working out uh, how your cells are perceiving their environment makes a great deal of difference onto how successfully your body retains a state of health. You mentioned Otto Warburg, and um, I believe he's been seriously misquoted over the years um, because what, what he said has been taken out of context. And of course, the acidity side of things, um, uh, when, when people have cancer, the the cancer tumor itself is kind of creates the that that is the acidic environment so it's always going to be there unless you take great uh, lengths to to change the environment as you say by eating eating properly living in the the right kind of environment drinking quality water um having your mind in the right place etc cetera, etc cetera. it doesn't matter what, what illness you've got what 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 label it is what it's called how serious it is unless yeah. you take steps to make these changes because if you don't change you know it's, it's a case of doing the same old thing and expecting different results it's madness isn't it absolutely and, and it always amazes me how many people especially after something like a, a cancer treatment want to just go back to behaving how they did before without really being given any education or acknowledgement that well part of the reason why the problem showed up is because of how you lived before and, you know, because the, the cancer cells are typically uh, functioning just on glycolysis, they're just functioning on sugar metabolism for energy rather than on our Krebs cycle, which is oxygen dependent. You know, so as the cells become oxygen starved, and again, we're coming right back to cell membranes and absorption stuff here. Uh, you know, this is part of what starts to change the conditions in the cells and is more likely for them to express adverse patterns, whether that be cancer or any other disease. So the maintenance of the system, just like if we put rubbish oil in the engine of the car, it's more likely to seize up or damage it. You know, we, we just have to understand those basic mechanics for ourselves. And, and unfortunately, I don't feel that we get good ed education either through the media, through our schooling, uh, often not through our parents, uh, you know, because there's a lot of uh, just simple convenience and time management being put ahead of, of quality and uh, an actual usefulness within food. Bottom line is we have to take responsibility ourselves because nobody else is going to do it for us. Absolutely. And, and that, that's a tough journey as well. It's, it's not like the information is easy. There's a lot of contradiction because there's so many variations. And it's a long case of experimentation of working out what really suits you. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm sure that this is going to replay this interview time and time again. I certainly will be. So thank how do people know. get hold of you? Uh, yeah, so if they want to uh, find me, uh, ben at bencolder.co.uk, email, or you can just go to my website, bencolder.co.uk, and uh, you'll find me nice and easy. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and other bits and bobs as well, but you can find all the links for those on my website. And how are you spelling Calder? C-A-L-D-E-R. So bencolder.co.uk. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Ben. I look forward to interviewing you again that uh, was having a conversation about some other bangled thing when it gets discovered. We seem to be discovering things, uh, you know, quite on a quite regular basis these days. And the epigenetics sure. uh, conversation is fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And uh, thank you, Elaine. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk with you again and, uh, and definitely look forward to, to sharing more fun stuff in the future. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks.